Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Merry Christmas, Bridge Church. Is it too early to say Happy New Year? When does that start? Okay, Happy New Year. Well, on our last Sunday of the year, our lead pastor, James, is spending the Sunday to be with his family. So today we have a guest speaker. His name is Christian Hernandez. Read a little bio on Christian here. Christian Hernandez is the lead pastor of Hope Astoria in Queens. He is the author of Beholding and Proclaiming and the founder of the Kerygma Group. He and his family live in Rockaway, enjoying the beach whenever they can. Coffee is probably his best friend, and reading books makes him pretty happy. If laughing and finding humor in things were a crime, he would be sent away for life without parole. Bridge Church, please welcome Christian Hernandez. You know, I forget what's in the bio. Um, That last line is pretty funny, but accurate. I would be sent to jail if laughing at things was a crime. Um, It is so good to be with you guys. I I have virtually stalked your church for the last couple years. I've been rooting for you uh, all the way from Queens. I'm a Brooklynite, and as you know, uh, the great theologian Most Deaf once said that Brooklyn's not a borough, it's a blood type, and so it's in you. Um, And so it's good to be home, and assuredly, I was supposed to come and preach today. Uh, if you only knew the things uh, that I've had to go through just to get here. And so I don't know about you. Uh, I came here to be with God and I believe he's going to meet with us. How many are on the same page there? How many are hungry to hear from God and meet him? And so if you are, let's go to scripture. We're going to be reading from the gospel of Mark, the first chapter, verse 14 and 15. It says this, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Let me read that one more time. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Can we pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the absolute honor it is to gather in your name to be your people, that once we were not a people, but now we're the people of God. And we thank you for your presence that's here. You promised you would be in the midst of your church. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill this place, that you would glorify Jesus in our midst. Would you reveal him in a fresh and living way to each of us today? We thank you for all you're doing in us, all you're doing through us. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to start by sharing a quote with you that I've had a kind of a turbulent relationship with. I, I used to have a deep allergy to this quote. Here's the quote. Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. 
Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. Now, whenever I've shared this quote, inevitably there's people in the audience who are like, I see no problem with this quote. What is wrong with you, Christian? But here's my initial allergic reaction to this. I felt that it was flippant. Felt it was almost uh, insensitive. Because if you've had some of the 10% that I've had, if this would feel very dismissive. Now, we don't know each other, so we're going to get to know each other in a few minutes as quickly as I can. And so I was born the result of an adulterous relationship. My mother met my father. She came to the U.S. from Puerto Rico. She was one of eight uh, children because clearly they didn't have Netflix and TV back then or hobbies. So my grandmother was just popping them out. And so my mother was the only one that left the island, came here quite at a older age, uh, mid-20s, and she meets my dad. And they, sure enough, get into a relationship. He was married, and my sister's born, and it causes a huge scandal. And at that point, uh, my mom said, hey, this was a, a bad idea. Uh, we're, we're, this relationship is done. I'll raise our daughter by, ourself, by myself, uh, to which my dad responded and said, no, this relationship is over when I say it's over. And uh, you ruined my life. You're not just going to get away with it that easy. And so inevitably he would, uh, and family members verified this over the years, um, that he would break into her apartment. He would wait for her at the, end, at the end of her work shift, uh, stalk her all the way home. Sure enough, I'm conceived. And at this point he says, this isn't going to happen again. And so he demanded that she would abort me. And so he took her to the abortion clinic three times. And each time she went, she lied that she went through with it. And when he would notice that uh, her belly wasn't shrinking, he uh, beat her in order to force a miscarriage. The third time she went to the abortion clinic, a woman stopped her in the parking lot and said, don't abort this child. God has a plan for this child. She began to weep. She got on a plane that day with my sister, went to Puerto Rico, and gave birth to me. Six months later, uh, my dad died. Uh, when I was just a little boy, never knew him. And we came back to New York, uh, and I grew up here in Brooklyn during the 80s and 90s, during the crack epidemic and the violence that swept through New York. But can I tell you, Brooklyn has softened quite a bit. Uh, and so I remember one Saturday showing up to Sunset uh, and see, I saw white people jogging and nobody chasing them. And I said, this is an amazing phenomenon. What has happened here? But during, I remember as a kid the distinct fear at the age of eight, thinking I could get stabbed today, leaving our apartment, seeing people with syringes hanging out of their veins. When you've gone through some things like that, this quote could feel very dismissive. It's just, you know, life is just 10% what happens to you. And, and perhaps some parts of my story you could relate with. I hope you can't relate with a lot of it, but you have your own 10%. You have your own things that have happened to you that can be quite traumatic, that can hit you like a truck. So what do you do with it? Now here's the reality, as I've gotten older, become more mature, realize that yeah, poverty happens to you, lack of resources, racism, all sorts of things happen in your 10%, but the mature real thing is that you do have to figure out how you're gonna respond to it. And the, most of our life is spent figuring out what our 90% response is going to be to the 10% stuff that happened. And actually, 
This phenomenon of responding to what happens, it's the most human thing. We're doing it all the time. We respond to traffic patterns. We respond to economic shifts. We respond to all sorts of things. In fact, after 9-11, there was a study that showed that Americans were gaining weight pretty aggressively after the days that happened. Why? Because we were responding to stress with what? Comfort food. We respond all sorts of things. Right now, you may not be aware of, you might be responding to something that happened a long time ago. And you're not even aware that you're just in a loop of response to what happened. That thing happened long ago. That person did that thing. They haven't thought about you since, and you are still responding. You're in your 90% response to what happened. And we have a choice. We could either deny what happened, we could become indifferent, or we can face what happened and live in response to those significant moments. Why are we speaking so much about what's happened and how we respond to it? Because in light of the verse that we read, which is one of the most significant, beautiful verses in the New Testament, it tells us something that's quite profound. It tells us that God has acted, that God has punctuated human history, entered into his creation, and something has happened. And what Mark tells us is that what has happened is that the kingdom of God has come. Jesus, this is his very first message. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. What's profound about this is that if, if you don't know, all religions have their historic dates, but none are so intricately connected to historic dates like ours. In that there was a definitive cross. There was a definitive incarnation. History books don't deny that there was a man named Jesus. They may debate whether he was a liar or a lunatic or the Lord, but they don't deny that he existed. Why? Because God has acted. He's entered into creation. To the thing that he created, he incarnated, became one of us, fully human and fully God. And when he enters in, he declares something. He says, the kingdom of God has come near. What's amazing about our faith that it's not, it, it's not comprised just of commands or truths. It's commands and truths connected to an event, a historic event, a significant moment. And what Jesus says has happened by the incarnation, him entering into this world, he says that the kingdom of God has come. Can you say that with me? The kingdom of God has come. Why is that significant in light of what Jesus says? It says, going back to the verse, says that Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And what's the good news according to Jesus? That the kingdom of God has come. It's near. It's at hand. That's, that stood out to me, because if you've ever heard the term gospel, the term gospel, the word gospel means good news. Often we associate or truncate that word to a musical style, a musical style which I'm very fond of, but it's not the full definition of the word. Or we truncate that word gospel to 
something a preacher does at the end of his message, inviting people to profess faith in Jesus. We say gospel is this message that you believe in order to get into heaven. But Jesus is actually saying something about the gospel that we have to pay attention to. You see, he's not focusing on the extremes of the gospel as we would understand it. He's not saying that the good news is the bloody cross. That's to come later. He's not saying that the good news is the empty tomb. That's to come later. Actually, what he's saying is that the good news is that he has come and he's near us. The good news is, is that God intimately knows what it's like to be you. It's not an abstract mental thing for him to think, what would it be like to be a human being? He fully knows. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to experience physical pain, hunger. He knows what it's like to be judged, to experience loss. He knows what it's like because he has fully lived our experience. Scripture says in the book of Hebrews that he was tempted in every way, just like you and I, yet without sin. Did you, you, you probably didn't know how Christ-like you are. When was the last time you were tempted? Some of you, you were tempted right before you came here. You were tempted to curse somebody out, they cut you off. You were tempted before you went on vacation, you know, to tell your boss off. You, you, we've been tempted in all ways. Did you not know that you were being quite Christ-like at that moment? You and Jesus were one, running together. He was tempted. He didn't sin. But he was tempted. The incarnation, the good news, it, it, it's not just the bloody cross or the empty tomb. Jesus here is highlighting something that the good news is that he has come. I remember uh, as a kid, I went to Dewey Junior High School. Uh, it's on 40th Street between uh, 4th Avenue, between 3rd and 4th Avenue. And I remember distinctly the first week that I was in junior high school, sixth grade. I came to Christ when I was 14, so this was a few years before I became a Christian. And first week in, in school, I was acquainted with this ritual. I did not know that this was a ritual in my school, that basically every Friday we waited to see who was going to get jumped. It was just a Friday ritual. And it was a crazy thing. The guards would just come in and close the door, and they would act as if there weren't any kids outside. It was just like, you guys are on your own. We were with you the whole week. Figure it out. And so I remember seeing a kid get jumped on a Friday. I was like, yo, what kind of jungle am I in right now? Lo and behold, I go into Spanish class, Miss Mejias. She was the shortest human being I've ever seen in my life. And so I go into Spanish class, I notice how short she is, and then I notice this kid named Gilly. Now, Gilly had one of the largest families in the world. I'm not kidding you, like 35 cousins, 40 aunts. It was no joke. I didn't know this about Gilly, and I didn't know that all of his family lived right across the street from Dewey Junior High School. And so me and Gilly had some bad history because the summer before that, Gilly and his cousins robbed me of my Notre Dame hat. 
it was, yeah, exactly. And so it wasn't a starter cap because I didn't, I, I, we weren't loaded as a family. It was the G cap, if you know what I'm talking about. It was lesser than, but it still had Notre Dame. And so I had my hat and three of them robbed me. One of them was grabbing me up. I couldn't do anything. My friend stood there just as if he was a limb tree. He did nothing. It was just a horrible experience. And I was looking for Gilly, but I could never find him alone. He always had his 40 cousins and his 60 aunts. And so I could do math. That's just not good. And so I walk in and I see him at Miss Mejia's class. And I say, this is my moment. So what do I do? I start picking a fight with Gilly. And what did he do? He, he responded. And so out of nowhere, he spit on my desk. And so I, said, so I start exchanging words with him, calling him a pig, whatever, and begin to embarrass him in front of the whole class. And out of nowhere, he sucker punched me. Boom. And I was like, all right, now it's on. We're going to fight. And so we start fighting, and it was pandemonium. Poor Mrs. Mejia, she's screaming, ah! And so I, I don't know. The adrenaline's rushing. He's stabbing me in the leg with a pen. I didn't feel it because I'm just, like, banging his head against the radiator. It was nuts. I was victorious, though. I tell you all that to let you know I know how to fight. And so I won the fight. I go into the dean's office, and he, he very quickly says, listen, uh, you're suspended. I got to go. He's in bad shape. I was like, yes, I won. But I didn't know that victory was going to be short-lived because I didn't know his family lived across the street. That was a Tuesday, and as soon as I left, they said, we're going to see you on Friday. And these were grown men that did not have any issue in their minds beating a 12-year-old. Because I was, in full disclosure, I was this height at the age of 12. My voice changed this deep at the age of 10. Convinced my mother was feeding me steroids and just wasn't honest about it. And so I looked older than what I appeared, and now every single day, until Friday, I had to walk past this mob of people. And as I walked past, I was like, we're going to see you on Friday. And I'm walking. I'm like, oh, good Lord. Wednesday comes. Thursday comes. Now Friday comes. And I'm, I'm waiting as long as I can. And finally, the guard is like, you got to go. And he knew. <laughs> you got to go. I look back. Betrayed by an adult, I leave the doors, shuts them. As I walk toward the corner, I see the crowd again. But all of a sudden, I see one little ray of hope. My cousin Frankie was there. Now, this is my immediate thought. Yes, we can get beat up together. This is going to be great. <laughs> uh, we'll be in a hospital together. We'll get through this. And as I get closer, all of a sudden, I begin to hear this crazy dialogue. They begin to tell, Frankie, don't talk to us that way. Frankie begins to say, no, I'm, I'm going to talk to every, all of you the way I want to. None of you is going to touch my cousin. Don't disrespect. None of you is going to touch my cousin. And as I'm getting there, I was like, oh, this is a different turn of events. What's going on? And then as I get closer, he's like, go home, Christian. I was like, for real? And, and so as I get closer, he's like, go home. None of them moved. None of them tried to jump me. What I didn't know is that when Frankie went to school with them, he beat all of them up. They still had the trauma. <laughs> he didn't have to lay a finger. All he had to do was show up. Can I tell you that one greater than Cousin Frankie has showed up? He's come. 
He's incarnate. He dwelt among us. And as he entered into our human experience, he declares good news. And his good news is, my kingdom has come. My reign is here. My authority is here. My kingship is here. And all of our enemies have been put on notice. Now, that's, the good news is that the kingdom has come. The bad news of that good news is that in order for his kingdom to come, your kingdom has to go. Jesus refuses to share his throne with anybody. He's under the distinct impression that he's Lord. And when he relates to you and I, he doesn't relate to us as if he needs us to serve him. He's not begging you to make him your savior if you refuse to make him your Lord. It says, the good news is my kingdom is near. But in order for you to access this kingdom, it's not enough to acknowledge that God has acted. We have to respond to what he's done. This is what he's done. He's come. He's declared his kingdom is here. But now you and I have to respond to it. And Jesus tells us what that response should be. He says, the time has come. He said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. It's fascinating to me that our lives as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is a nonstop, ongoing response to what God has done. We complicate it often. And often we think we've initiated this relationship, that we're the ones sustaining it. We're like the bee that gets trapped in an airplane and thinks that if it stops flapping its wings, the whole plane is gonna go down. We think we're keeping this thing afloat, but actually no, it's his initiating love, his pursuing grace, his kingdom has come. He's the one that's redeemed us and relentlessly pursued us. All we have to do is respond. And he gives us a very clear response, the appropriate response for you and I in light of his kingdom that has arrived is to repent and believe. Repent and believe. Can we say those words? Repent and believe. What does repent mean? It actually means to change your thinking. to see differently, to turn, to turn away from, to turn toward. We'll actually get to that slide in a little bit. Repentance is, in essence, realizing that you didn't see something accurately, and now your mind sees it differently. You see things as they are. How many have ever seen the show Undercover Boss? I hate that show uh, because they always get me, you know, like I'm like, I'm watching it. I'm like, they ain't going to do it to me. I'm going to keep my lip tight. They ain't going to do it. And inevitably at the end when he's like, you're my boss, you're going to buy me a house. It's like, oh man, this is great, man. This is great. It, it, but what happened at that moment? The person is realizing, I thought I knew who you were, but now I'm realizing I didn't know who you were all along. They, they, they had a change of mind. The first step of repentance is before you change what you do, you have to change how you see God. And Jesus is saying, 
I've come and the first thing that has to happen is you have to repent, you have to think differently, and the first thing that is involved in you thinking differently, you have to see me accurately. See me as a king. See me as Lord. When that happens, that changes everything about our faith. If Jesus is Lord, you don't, get to, you don't have to serve him. You get to serve him. If he's king, our response is to joyfully submit to his reign. Not to find a convenient place for him in our life. Jesus refuses to share our hearts with anything. He refuses for our love toward him to be anything less than red hot. In fact, Jesus said that, that our love com with him compared with our love for others, our love for other things should appear as hate compared to our love for him. He said, if anyone doesn't love, doesn't hate father or mother, you say, Jesus, that doesn't make sense. In your word, it says to honor your father or mother. But you know, he's saying, compared to your love for me, your love for other things should look like hate. I wonder if in this room there's some people who are under the misunderstanding that it's okay to like Jesus when the king says, you have to love me, and I deserve that love. I'm the only thing that rightfully deserves that love. The king has come, and our response is to repent, and the first step is not stopping our behavior or changing it, but thinking differently about God. Do you see him as king, Bridge Church? Or do you just see him as savior? Do you see him as someone you like? Do you see him as someone you'll find a convenient place for him in your life? Do you see him as someone that you come with your agenda to him and ask him to bless it rather than you come and say, what's your agenda, my king? What do you want? We have to think differently. And what the Christian life is a constant recentering on the fact that God has acted. And we respond in repentance. Let me give you a broader definition of repentance. Repentance is marked by a deep sorrow for our sins that is biblically defined as godly grief. Godly grief allows us to feel what God feels towards sin. This is a grief that makes no excuses and takes full responsibility. In repentance, we begin to think differently about sin, and in that process, we turn away from sin as we turn toward God. We stop trusting in our own good deeds and religious activity and start trusting in Christ alone. Based on that definition, are you actively repenting? I didn't say you can, you're, are you actively saying, God, I sinned, forgive me saying, are you actively repenting? Are you actively feeling deep sorrow, feeling godly grief? Do you feel about sin the way God feels toward it? Is your godly grief one that makes no excuses and takes full responsibility? How many have ever gotten a weird apology from somebody? Like, I'm sorry that you couldn't understand me, right? You ever got, that's not repentance. 
Repentance is owning our stuff. And repentance is trusting in Christ alone, believing the good news. Our response is to repent and to believe. Repent and believe. And those two go hand in hand because what I've found over the years is that my ability to repent depends on my willingness to believe. Let me say that one more time. My ability to think differently about God, to turn away from sin as I turn toward God, is dependent on my willingness to believe the gospel. When I don't believe the gospel, repentance becomes impossible. I get stuck. The engine won't start, you can't move. But when I believe the gospel, repentance becomes possible. A few years ago, I had this really bad situation where someone I deeply trusted betrayed me. Has anybody ever had that happen to them? If that hasn't happened to you, live a little longer. It's part of being human. The problem was they were a fully committed follower of Jesus. Why is that a problem? If you're an unbeliever, if you don't follow Jesus in this room, literally, you could like slap me in the face and, I, and I'll protect myself, but I'll, I'll forgive you. It, you don't know any better in my book because you haven't met Jesus. It's easier for me to understand the sins, the offenses of people who don't profess faith in Jesus. But a leader, someone who's fully committed to Jesus, to just, oh, it was so painful. And I just found myself in a rut. Have you ever, have you ever found yourself in a place where, it, let me describe it. The mention of this person's name would make my back tense up. Some of you had Christmas dinner with people like that, you know? And so, you know what I'm talking about. It's the, the, the mention of their name, just, ugh. And I had to keep my face straight. And I was like, yeah, yeah, they're a good person, you know? And, and I, you know you haven't forgiven someone when they mysteriously are the source of all your problems. It's just like, man, it rained today. It's, it's Tom's fault, you know? Like, everything was, it, all roads led to this offense. And I couldn't get over it. And one night I was praying and God reminded me of a Bible study I had with my daughter right around Easter time when she was four. She's 10 now. And we were put, going to bed, was reading her the Bible. And, and for whatever reason, I've only done this once. I was recording this Bible study on the audio. And there's a lot in the Bible study that I won't share with you because it's completely incomprehensible because uh, her two-year-old brother was on the audio and he wanted to talk and it was cute, but it just didn't make sense. But my four-year-old began to share some things about the gospel that were absolutely profound. Can I invite you just to do something with me? Could you close your eyes just for a few moments and my daughter's about to bring you to church. Could you play the audio Alexa, why does the resurrection of Jesus, why is that a big deal? Why? Well, it's because, well, I was taught in school that there's this um, um, thing called um, Good Friday. Mm -hmm. And it's because he died on the cross for us. 
And then Sean in my class said, why is it so good? Jesus died. Why would anybody think that's good? It's because he died for us. That's why it's called Good Friday. And Resurrection Sunday, it's it's so um, awesome because like, it's so like big important deal because Jesus rose from the dead. I know like children will think that like it's really boring and it's not really anything, but it's really it's really exciting and it's really happy because um, Jesus died for us. He didn't just die because he was forced to die, and it wasn't the nails that were keeping him on the cross. It was love. It wasn't the nails. He couldn't just climb down. They were right, but. Jesus didn't want to climb down because he died for us. He could have just climbed down if he wanted to, but he didn't. He couldn't, and he didn't want to. The nails weren't keeping him on. They were keeping the other two persons on, but they weren't keeping Jesus on. And, well, Resurrection Sunday is so important because um, if you don't go to it, like if you're sick or something, it's fine, but you should go to it. Mm-hmm. And it's because it's when Jesus rose and he died for us and he was risen and um it's just because it well Jesus is just such a big deal for everybody because he's the son of God he's the one who takes care of us also it's not just God it's also Jesus well God is Jesus but just it's so just it's so good because it's a big deal it is because Jesus died for us. I love you. But it's my time to be still not stop. <laughs> it, none of that was coached, or it just flowed out of her. And I love, <laughs> I love how much of a preacher's kid she says. You know, you should go to church. You know, it's a, if you can, it's all right. But you really should go. You know, that night when God reminded me of this recording and I listened to it, I just utterly wept because I realized my inability to forgive this person was not because their offense was so great. It was because my belief was so small that if I fully believe the gospel, that Jesus died for me, a broken sinner, then how could I refrain from extending forgiveness to this brother? I love the the quote by Wolf that forgiveness flounders when we exclude our enemies from the community of humans and we exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. When I stop seeing the person who sins against me as a human and I stop seeing myself as a sinner, it becomes impossible to forgive. But when you believe the good news of Jesus, that he's Lord, that he's king, that he fully knows what it's like to be like you and I, that he bled for us, died for us, lived for us. When you recognize the great cost of your sin and mine, when you believe that, how could we not turn away from our pride, our lust, our greed, our consumerism, our jealousies. Every sin that you're struggling with now, your breakthrough comes in believing the gospel and continuing to believe the gospel. Whenever you and I sin, we're disbelieving the gospel. We're disbelieving 
the good news of Jesus. We're believing something else. We're believing that we could find satisfaction or peace or joy in something other than the good news of Jesus. And Jesus says, the good news is that his kingdom has come. Can I tell you, everything you and I are searching for, everything that New Yorkers are living and dying for, giving all their blood, sweat, and tears for, it's all found in Jesus. It's all found in the gospel. And Jesus invites us to respond to what he's done. This is what he's done. He's come. He's entered into this world. He's declared that his kingdom is here. He says the good news is that I'm king and you don't have to be. Isn't it good news that you don't have to spend the rest of your life being Lord over your life? That he can be Lord and that he knows best and that he got things figured out and things that you're worrying about, that's the king's problem. His kingdom has come. Our kingdom must go. And what happens in that process of him acting and us responding, we repent as we believe the good news. And today, Jesus wants to invite you and I to believe the good news, to re-believe it, to recenter ourselves. The moment this good news becomes old news, you're spiritually dead, just someone hasn't had the decency to tell you about it yet. You stop living. There's no life. There's no power. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. He didn't say it's a power of God. He says, the power of God. The power you need to obey, to walk with Jesus, to extend his kingdom on earth is in the gospel. And as we repent and believe it, we can live kingdom-centered lives. We can respond to our king. Going, ending with the quote that I started with earlier, a play on words, reversing it. I think that the gospel inverts the ratio, that 90% of our faith is what Christ has done. 10% of it is how we respond to it. He's done the heavy lifting. You can't save yourself, isn't that good news? You can't be good enough. You can't be holy enough. I don't, know if, I don't know if you just heard what I said. You can't be good enough and you can't be holy enough. For us sinners in this room, that should make us shout. You can't be holy enough. You can't be good enough. You can never earn this. You can never deserve it. It was never hinged on your obedience. It was his obedience, his perfect, sinless obedience that purchased our redemption, that justifies us in the sight of God. And we access that good news when we repent and believe. Could I invite us to stand? And in a moment, we're gonna partake of communion. We're gonna to come to the Lord's table, but before we do so, can I invite you to raise your hands in the presence of God? I wanna pray for you, pray for us. And with our hands raised, I'm wondering, today, how is Jesus calling you to repent? What parts of the gospel are you not fully believing right now? Or need to re-believe it? Jesus, 
Lord, with our hands raised at this moment, we pray that you would grant us the gift of repentance as you fill our hearts with faith toward the gospel. Jesus, some of us have come in this room with unforgiveness, with bitterness, with resentments. Lord, some of us are carrying shame because of sins that we just can't shake, addictions we can't break. Jesus, your kingdom has come and you invite us to respond in repentance and faith. Jesus, we say with our hands raised, you are the king and I'm not. Right now in your own words, surrender lordship of your life to King Jesus. Whatever you're worrying about, you're controlling. Whatever you're obsessing over, you're the Lord over that. Hand those keys over to Jesus. Jesus, you're the king. Your kingdom has come. This good news, the gospel is that you have come. And I surrender to you now. Jesus, would you help us to believe the gospel, believe in all of it, the incarnation, the bloody cross, the empty tomb, the ascended body, your, your soon returning reign. Jesus, would you help us to fully believe and keep believing and returning to it? And may that break cycles of addiction and sin and struggle. Jesus, would that break shackles off of our souls that only the power of the gospel can do. Would you help us to return today? In Jesus' name, amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at BridgeChurchNYC. Our website is BridgeChurchNYC.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.